and welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this is part one of episode five on the theme of generations. I don't know about you, but for the past few months, I've been experiencing that surreal feeling of living a moment in history. Something you know you will, as the saying goes, tell your grandkids about someday. And when I heard our first story today, it made me realize that some of us have already heard stories like these from our grandparents about surviving pandemics. And even more than that, some of us are already carrying that weight with us. Some of us are already driven by the memory of pandemics past. In part one of this episode, we'll hear a story about this, and then we'll talk to science historian Marta Hansen about how we've responded to pandemics of the past. Our first story is from Mary Sue Kitchen, who was director of the Fairfax County Health Department Laboratory for 17 years. The story was recorded at her home in Vienna, Virginia, and was originally developed for a live online show we produced in partnership with the American Public Health Laboratories. In January of 2012, I was in Atlanta in the Emergency Operations Center of the Centers for Disease Control as part of a special tour arranged for the board of the Association of Public Health Laboratories. I was watching a live worldwide tally of infectious disease on a huge world map at the head of the room. I felt secure, prepared, proud of our nation and of our world for the great strides made in public health and in emergency preparedness in recent years. I reflected on my 40-year career in laboratory medicine in particular, the past 20 years spent working in a local public health laboratory next to the nation's capital. Our laboratory routinely dealt with pathogens like tuberculosis, HIV, West Nile virus, and rabies. And we had just built a new public health laboratory with a special molecular biology section prepared to rapidly identify emerging pathogens in the future. I thought back to a story told by my grandmother in my childhood that had inspired my career. When I was eight years old, our family moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Lincoln, Nebraska. We lived with my grandparents for a few months. One morning in the summer of 1955, when I was home alone with my grandmother, I tripped at the top of a dangerous back stairway and fell head over heels down the stairs, gashing my leg severely and crashing headfirst into kitchen cabinets at the base of the stairs. 
As my grandmother tended to my wounds, she comforted me with a story of the part those stairs had played in the survival of her family many years earlier during the influenza epidemic of 1918. It had started in the spring of that year. By May, her elderly neighbors had both died of influenza. My worried grandfather sent my grandmother and my four-year-old father to isolate with distant relatives on a remote Nebraska farm for a few months. They were eager to return home when school started in the fall. By October, all three of them had come down with influenza at about the same time. My grandmother was so sick she was unable to get out of bed. She awoke after several days to the sound of my father crying from hunger in the next room. She crawled on her hands and knees up and down those same stairs that I had just fallen down to feed her family, too sick and too weak to even stand. They survived on not much more than jugs of milk poured over saltine crackers for the next few weeks. I listened to her story as she bandaged my leg. The bleeding stopped, the pain receded, but the story stayed. Why have I remembered it through all these years? I think because that morning, as we sat on that kitchen floor, propped against the kitchen cupboards, both of us were crying out of fear and relief. I think my grandmother cried out of that fear universal to parents, the fear of failing one's children. After all, she had just failed to prevent me from falling down those dangerous stairs, and she had relived the most fearful story of her life, the time that she was so sick she had failed to feed her only child. I cried out of relief that I had avoided stitches and broken bones, but also frightened by her unaccustomed tears and by the dread disease that had caused her fear. Years later, as I sat in that CDC conference room, I thought my grandmother might be proud of my career and of what our country had accomplished over the years to better prepare for future pandemics. It seemed a good time for me to retire. When COVID-19 arrived this spring, eight years into my retirement, my husband and I decided to isolate here at home 
for a few months until public health got things under control. I've been frequently disappointed and angry these past few months. I was totally shocked when federal control of the epidemic was delegated to the states in early May. Every public health plan I had ever written depended on a close coordination between local, state, and national public health resources. This was not the public health system I had retired from. I had nightmares about laboratories in 50 different states bidding against each other for scarce and complicated molecular diagnostics with no federal coordination or purchasing assistance. If laboratory stockrooms currently looked anything like the pandemic hodgepodge in my garage, Lord help us all. So where does all this confusion and lack of coordination leave me and my family? My grandmother came home from the farm too soon in 1918. So my husband and I practiced strict isolation due to our age and multiple risk factors. We are lonely because our children and grandchildren all live far away in distant states. Our family and friends are confused by different and conflicting messages from a myriad of different news sources with no clear national risk coordination and communication. Right now, despite a century of cutting-edge science, I feel abandoned by my nation and not much better off than my grandmother a hundred years ago. I worry about my valiant lab colleagues right down the street when I hear reports of extended shifts and instrument and reagent shortages. I offer to help and then feel guilty when I reconsider and decide not to help. Not sure I should risk such close exposure to co-workers, both for my husband's sake as well as my own. I do feel lucky that I have retired in a county and a state with a good public health system, and I can vote, something my grandmother could not do in 1918. Each of us have been left largely alone these days to navigate a confusing path between risk and responsibility. One evening last week, several neighbors invited us to a socially distanced lawn party. I started to join in and then thought of my grandmother 
in 1918. I paused briefly by an open window. Soft laughter, lawn chairs spaced well apart, fireflies in the dusk, dogs playing catch. I looked again at all my dear neighbors, some gathered way too close together under a street lamp, only a few wearing masks. I watched their dogs ferry a saliva-covered ball from hand to hand to hand across the lawn. That night, I decided to stay inside. That was Mary Sue Kitchen. Mary Sue was director of the Fairfax County Health Department Laboratory for 17 years, from 1995 to 2012. The laboratory provides public health testing to a population of over a million people in the Washington, D.C. metro area. On the national level, Mary Sue served on the board of the Association of Public Health Laboratories, as well as the Infectious Disease Committee. Her career spans 40 years in laboratory medicine. Before we move on to our interview segment, just a quick reminder that you can catch more true personal stories about science at our live online shows. Find out more about those at storyquieter.org, where you can also find out more about our online storytelling workshops. We have a new workshop open every month, as well as advanced elective courses that you can sign up for. Check those out, storyquieter.org workshops. If you're listening to this series thinking that you have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a big or small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storyquieter.org, or you can pitch through the form on our website. We're currently working on our next series of COVID-19 stories, and we would love to work with you on yours. When I heard Mary Sue's story, it made me think about the fact that this isn't the first time humanity has endured a pandemic, even in some of our lifetimes. And I couldn't help but wonder... Did we make the same mistakes then that we're making now? What lessons can we learn? So I was excited to talk to historian Marta Hansen. Marta is an associate professor of the history of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So to talk about a pandemics of the past, we're joined by Dr. Marta Hansen, a historian of medicine at Johns Hopkins University, who has a particular focus on Chinese science and medicine. Welcome, Marta. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for chatting with me today. So I'm really excited to talk to you, a historian, about this because I think all of us are really curious, those of us who have never experienced a pandemic or an epidemic of this scale before in our lifetimes, uh, we're really curious how this compares in the grand scheme of things. What's your sense of how catastrophic this pandemic is compared to pandemics of the past? I think it's comparable. I think mm -hmm. when you look at it from a historical point of view, um, we there's many um, sources that of humans and all over the world uh, in the Greek tradition with very early accounting, for example, by Thucydides. They're dealing with um, uh, what's the first plague pandemic um, in the mid 
uh, 6th through mid-8th century, went waves in a, over 200 years. Um, China is the many responses to catastrophic events like this. So there's religious responses, there's state responses, there's individual responses, there's blaming others and not taking responsibility. And there's all these are patterns that we see in previous responses to pandemic. And we're, you know, it's, maybe it's comforting as a historian to see, oh, we've been through this before. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then there's how to negotiate public response. So do you, do you, do you have transparency or lack of transparency? Do you try to control, you know, not give all the information you have in order for the public not to go into panic, right? This is, we see this again and again and again repeating itself, and it's no different than the current administration. Yeah, that was one thing I was going to ask about is how have government responses in the past compared to the government response that we're seeing today? I, I, there are similar patterns. Hmm. Uh, yeah, similar lack of transparency of what's going on, not not wanting to get the public uh, panicked about it, holding back information. I think it's not just the past; it's in the present and other in other countries and other places too. That trying to manage uh, public response by by not revealing all the information um, and even even hiding numbers or lowering numbers. I mean, this is this is a big problem right now. Where what numbers can we? trust when you have an administration that it's not in their political interest to, to track. Well, I find it really um, disturbing to think that for the 1918 influenza pandemic, the numbers range from a low estimate of 50 million to a higher estimate of 100 million in the world, mm -hmm. 675,000 in the United States. Um, and I know for a fact that my, my great aunt was not in that number, so there are probably even more in the United States. Now, one of the reasons for that is they had a difficulty tracking um, the the dead when the healthcare infrastructure was you know, having a hard enough time just taking care of the sick, right? So I have understanding and compassion for that. But then there's the problem where we have today where there's lack of... Uh, kind of top-down federal effort to do proper tracking and accounting of, mor of morbidity and mortality. And that I find really egregious and mm. problematic, yeah. I was going to ask you about the way the public is responding compared to pandemics past, because I, I was thinking about you mentioned uh, scapegoating or blaming others earlier, and I think that we have seen a little bit of that as well. We've seen a lot of mm. scapegoating of China. I mean, they're even, you know, they blame it on it's the China virus or the Wuhan virus. And that I think is just one way of deflecting responsibility from the failures of the current administration. Um, and it's not productive to do. But also, epidemics are known to come from the outside. So there's a long history of calling them, you know, uh, the Spanish flu actually wasn't from Spain or anything. It's just that it was the Spanish news that was reporting on it because the other uh, the other countries during the World War One were not allowed to report on it. So you see, there is a lack of you know transparency then because of the war effort. So there are similar political reasons in the past why such epidemics or pandemics aren't properly re recorded and tracked at the time that we see 
today um, in, in being politicized, and even masks. I mean, mm. masks were a big political issue um, in the 1918 influenza pandemic, as they are today. And really? Probably, yeah, today probably even more um, politicized than intentionally politicized than it had been then. But yeah, people were really resistant to wearing them. They had individual rights to choose or not to choose and adjust uh, according to their own sense of risk, um, not at all really thinking about the community. I, I, I like to talk about, when I talk about these things, COVID consciousness. And so I think of COVID consciousness requiring contagion consciousness. That is the science of that contagion. Um, so people understand that, what an airborne virus is like and how it can spread so quickly, which is really essential for understanding why it's important to wear a mask to protect others from you. You know, and protect our elders from the younger, that they're people that are more susceptible. So that's, uh, I think, uh, important to see as part of COVID consciousness. And the other one is what I, I call China consciousness, because in this particular um, political milieu, China is, is being, is the scapegoat against which the um, failures of the current administration to control COVID are being projected, right? So it's, it's China's to blame original. They didn't, you know, they, didn't uh, do this, didn't do that. It's, it's the origin. All of these kinds of xenophobic, uh, cynical ways of um, framing it. I also find it's important to understand why it's being framed that way and what kind of nefarious work it's doing politically. My, my history is very informative at this moment. My fellow medical historians are very busy right now uh, responding and showing historical precedent that precedents and examples things that didn't work well in the past that we also see in the present and how can we, you know, what, you know, prove things in the, in the uh, present, or at least make some kind of historical uh, inside intervention so that we can do better wherever we're placed. I mean, that's one of the, one of the reasons why I find doing history so important at this moment, especially in yeah. history. Yeah. What I also wanted to say, I mean, that's a diachronic perspective on our, our present, that there is a pattern to, to epidemics, you know, that they there's a progressive revelation, there's a certain way of managing the randomness, how to negotiate public response, you know, a different, and also it will end, and then there will be a time of retrospection. I don't think we're going to really understand all the complexity of what's going on for the next decade. Mm. Um, but it's comforting to know that we, you know, to know that there's a script in advance. And I think it can help us facilitate how we perform or anticipate or choose a role we want to take into our pres present, into where we're positioned. You know, what are the steps that we can take each individual um, to uh, march into the future that we would like to see, a post-COVID future? And I find, I find that comforting um, in doing history of medicine because you get a sense of what that script is, what it looks like. We've been here before. And then how can I, you know, intervene and uh, help other people find a sense of agency in their lives? Yeah. Are there any of those lessons that you'd like to share with us aside from those that you already have? I think the main thing is to understand that we're in this together, mm. that this is uh, an issue of human experience and that we are collectively responsible for each other and not to sink into despair, but to find 
agency wherever one can find it that's appropriate for each individual. And I think that's an individual decision. I think it's a, a time of a revelation. And so this virus and our response to it is uncovering a lot of things, undoubtedly, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just um, uncovering um, systemic racism and healthcare disparities and all the really ugly things about our contemporary society. I'm a little bit curious as well what life was like for normal people during the pandemic's past, because presumably they couldn't all work from home. They couldn't communicate on Zoom. How did they cope during pandemics? Well, that's an interesting question. I think um, the wealthy fled. Hmm. Just like we saw, like we see now, actually, the wealthy are buying homes in, um, you know, outside of major cities or um, buying second houses. We saw Italy early on, the wealthy going to their second houses in the south or on Sardinia and getting out of the major cities. So that's one major thing that we see happening. Um, those who have means just leave the urban areas where the epidemics tend to be concentrated. And those who can't do that, um, try to stay in or you know, avoid contact with other people. Um, and unfortunately, they, it's just like we see today, there are those who just can't, don't have the possibilities of doing that and are therefore mm. more exposed and more um, likely to die from the epidemics and therefore get blamed as the carriers. Mm when in fact it's more a structural problem of uh, uh, socioeconomic inequalities that place them in more vulnerable positions of exposure. And I mean, we also see comparable uh, recourses to religion in, in, in positive and negative ways. Um, finding some solace in a community that is good, and but also finding a rhetoric of blaming or putting um, the blame on others or finding some kind of divine cause for this rather than looking at what's that, you know, what we would call a more scientific approach. Wow, the, the similarities on kind of every level are pretty remarkable. I'm wondering, is there anything about this particular pandemic that is different? compared to pandemics of the past? Ah, I find, one, the circulation of the disease is much more facilitated because of our global transportation system, I guess. Ah. Um, and also the media is so much more developed than it was earlier. So there's so much more misinformation and politicizing, and I, I just call it noise than I than before. So many alternate, alternate realities mm. about it. Um, I, such a multiplicity of perspectives, I guess, so because of the, the multiple media outlets that are have developed. I think that's really different. One, I guess, what is another really striking difference? I think, I think it's just shocking how the 
the administration is just flaunting science. Mm. I think before, when there was science, it was valued as a you know resource to use, and here it's just so politicized in such a disturbing way. I, I don't remember or recall a time when that has been has been so starkly true. I mean, I, I, it's shocking. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe it has to do with the politis- the politicization of the situation, the fact that science has been politicized for the past decade or so, at least. Yeah, and there's been a real skepticism toward intellectuals or science and all that kind of um, thing. And um, maybe, maybe the silver lining will be that people will, some greater percentage of people will have what I call contagion consciousness, at least some respect for the science behind these kinds of epidemic diseases, because this is, well, in my humble opinion, it's not going to be our first pandemic. I think, I think we're going to, we're going into an age of pandemics. I think our new norm is going to be wearing masks. I don't think we're ever going to go back to shaking hands. Um, except for political, I mean, maybe that'll be, that's clearly highly politicized now too, but hugging, um, the French kissing on both sides of the cheek, shaking hands with strangers. I don't, I just think all of those things are going to be, I don't think we're going back to them. At least some people won't be going back to them. Wow. I, I think we're going into a pandemic century. I guess I said that already, but yes. If we're facing down an age of pandemics, let's hope that at least we learn our lessons from this one. Right. Well, hopefully we, yes. I, well, that's my, I guess that's my ending note. I think that uh, we have to get better. And mm-hmm. I, I have, there's many signs that we can, and there are other ways of doing things. And collectively, I think that we just have to do better than what has happened the past half a year. Agreed. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Marta. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Erin. I'm glad I've had this opportunity to talk with you a little bit. StoryQuetter is so grateful to Marta for sharing her knowledge and to Mary Sue for sharing her story. StoryQuetter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from StoryCliders Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to StoryCliders Board, our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and our Interim Executive Director Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by Senior Producer Catherine J. Wu. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Stay tuned for two more stories in part two of Generations on Monday. Until then, this is StoryQuiter signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thank you for listening. My name is Jeff Zimmerman, and I swear to Christ, if I hear the word pivot one more time, I'm going to fill my N95 mask with vomit. I'm a stand-up comic and storyteller, and I used to pay my bills teaching storytelling to performers and businesses. 
And I'd have told you I was going to have a great year if you'd have asked me on March 1st. And listen, I'm not trying to start a suffering contest here. 2020 has completely sucked for everybody. So this podcast is called The Reluctant Phoenix. I'll be having conversations with people in my life and beyond who have restarted their lives whether or not they really wanted to in the first place. And all I'm saying is that even if a phoenix is supposed to catch on fire to be reborn, I bet it screams like hell on the way out. So please, subscribe now to The Reluctant Phoenix, available wherever the very finest podcasts are digitally distributed.